And I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Galatians chapter 1. And this evening where we come to the fifth and final lesson of this first chapter, rather I should say the fifth and final message on God's gospel, and it is the last sermon that we'll have in chapter number 1. And what we've been studying is how the opponents of Paul had alleged that he was preaching an inferior gospel. That he had a gospel that was good, but not quite good enough. That it could lead people up to the brink of salvation, but something else needed to be done besides their faith in order for them to be justified with God. And his opponents were the uh, Judaizers who had perverted the gospel of Christ. And what they wanted to do was to add circumcision on top of faith and make that a part of justification. And so what they had was... I, I think we could call a cocktail, a, a mixed cocktail of, of grace and works, and that's how they thought that people could be justified with God. Paul was very adamant in opposing that, and he used some of the, the strongest words in Scripture in verses 8 and 9 when he said that anyone who preaches a gospel that's different than what he had preached, anyone who preaches a gospel that is not faith in Jesus Christ alone, that that person should be a curse for preaching a false gospel. Paul had received his learning directly from Christ, his calling directly from Christ. This gospel that he preached of justification by faith alone is actually the background of this epistle. And it's the argument over that which led to the other arguments concerning Paul's apostleship. So we have verses 11 through 24 which are Paul's proof that he had received his doctrine directly from Christ, that he was called by God to be an apostle, that he had been commissioned by God to preach to people this faith alone gospel. And we've seen how that was proved in these arguments of verses 11 through 24 by Paul's life before he was converted, the fact that he did have a miraculous conversion. And then thirdly, which is what we're going to deal with tonight, is the activities of Paul after he was converted. So we've already discussed his prior life, and we've talked about the gracious call that he had to salvation and to apostleship. That's in verses 11 through 16. So this evening, I want to begin at verse number 15 and read down to the end of the chapter. And Paul says here in verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, or rather behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which he once destroyed. 
Now, I think uh, in looking at this, what we really need to do is back up and go back up to verse number 11 and read this also because these are actually the verses that anchor the whole discussion of the rest of this chapter. And he says there, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in the first message that... I preached on this subject. We looked at verses 11 through 12, and I told you then that there were three critical postulates that Paul puts forth here that guarantee us or absolutely have to be true or else everything else that Paul says is of no effect to us. So these critical postulates are, and what he's trying to show forth here, number one is that the gospel is not his invention, and number two, the gospel is not by others' tradition, and thirdly, the gospel is by divine revelation. Now, we looked at that previously, so I'm not going to go into detail about those things tonight, but that is where we are. That's what these, the whole argument here is about in proving Paul's apostleship. And chiefly, that third one there that we want to deal with, the gospel is by, his, by divine revelation. Now, tonight I want to talk to you about the fourth point of this message, and that is the events posterior to Paul's conversion. The events previous to his conversion, those prove that he was preaching God's gospel. The irresistible plan of God in his conversion proved that. And then the activities after his conversion prove that he didn't invent the gospel, he didn't receive it by others' tradition, but that he did, in fact, receive this gospel directly by revelation of God. Now, you'll notice that in the last part of verse number 16, he says, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. And so what he's telling us here, that as soon as he was commissioned to preach the gospel, as soon as he was saved, he did not seek to have that confirmed by men. But instead what Paul did was he took an opposite course, and he went away from any place that he could be influenced in his faith. He chose to, to go away from uh, places where people could talk to him about the gospel. And, and he states this because he's just trying to prove to us that the gospel couldn't have come to him from any other person. It had to come to him from God. So the, Paul then takes a very odd course as we look at these scriptures. In fact, we would say that it's not a course that any ministerial candidate would dare take. What we would do is... We would subject ourselves to discipleship, and that's how we begin the ministry. We, we come under the intense instruction of others who have learned the Word of God and know the Word better than we. And so what is the likely thing for Paul to do? Well, there are some apostles that are not very far from him, just a few miles. They're in, they're in Jerusalem, and, and these men had learned directly from Christ. They had been with Christ during the three years of his ministry, and in fact, these men had knowledge that other people didn't know. And a case in point is what we've studied in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus said to the uh, disciples as he was giving them the parables of the kingdom, he said, For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. So these disciples have uncommon unprecedented knowledge of the things of God, things that were revealed directly to them by Jesus Christ. And so what do you do? 
if you're in Paul's place and you've just been saved and you've just, God's just been talking to you, what do you do? You're, you're supposed to preach. What do you do? Well, it looks like what he ought to do is saddle up his donkey or put on his sketchers or something and take off towards Jerusalem and go there to the great apostolic seminary. Go there to learn from the apostles. Now, Paul didn't do that, though. And we would have to ask, uh, if he didn't do that, can we do the same? Can we neglect those kinds of places? Can we neglect the teaching and instruction of people who know more about the Word of God than we know? Well, no, we can't do that. Uh, We know that if a person has been called by God, this is what he does do. He subjects himself to, to discipleship, and he does go under the teaching of the church. That's the method today. We go through the church, and that's what Paul instructed Timothy. He said, Timothy, what you do is that you go and tell what you have learned. You instruct other people. You teach others also the things that you have learned. And he said, ordain elders in the churches after they have learned the things that you know. So that's what we do. Well, this is a good thing. It's good for you to read your Bible at home, and you ought to do that. You ought to avail yourselves of all the resources that you can to learn about God. But that's not a substitute for going to church. It's not a substitute for sitting under instruction of God's Word from pastors and teachers that know the Word of God. The Apostle Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In our Ephesians study, and you know, I was thinking about this today, time goes by so fast, but it's now been a few years since we were in the book of Ephesians. But we looked at that particular verse at that time, and I don't know if you remember or not, Uh, Some of you may have been here, or some of you are here, and maybe you do remember this. But I told you then that in in that uh, 12th verse, that the King James Version has the correct pronunciation. The New King James Version removes the first comma in uh, in verse number 12, and what uh, that actually does, it changes the entire meaning of the verse. And it changes it to make the verse say that what pastors and teachers and the apostles and all these did was to train others for the ministry or to do the work of the ministry. Well, that is a true statement. There is no doubt that is a true statement, but it's not the point that's actually been made in this passage. The point here is that there is a unique ministry, a unique calling of God's men It's a different calling, Uh, and, and God calls apostles, as he said here, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in order to edify others in the faith, and in order to bring them, uh, all the individuals in the church, to the unity of the faith. That is a unique calling. That is a special ministry. And what we don't want to do is leave that comma out because we lose that sense that God has put these instructors in the church for, for our learning. Now, that's the normal way that things are done. But Paul didn't go through that process. He had seen the risen Christ. He was qualified to be an apostle. And actually, that is one of the qualifications. An apostle had to have seen Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead. That's why we don't have any apostles today. Nobody's ever seen the resurrected Christ. So it wasn't necessary for Paul to go to Jerusalem. 
He didn't need to go to get anybody's approval. He didn't need to get the blessing of the other apostles. That, wouldn't avow, that would not validate his apostleship. He already had everything that he needed. He had seen the risen Christ. And so his authority for this was established. And this put him on equal terms with the rest of the apostles. So he didn't go to Jerusalem. What did he do? He went to Arabia. Look at verse 17. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Now we want to notice here Paul's seclusion in Arabia. He said, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, but I went into Arabia. And he's telling us there that he didn't choose to consult with men about this, but rather he sought seclusion in Arabia. Now, what he's talking about here is actually the northern part of the peninsula of, uh, of Arabia. And we say, well, what did Paul do there? Well, why would Paul go to Arabia? And there's some who say, well, Paul had been called to preach the gospel, and so with this flaming desire, he went to Arabia to reach all the people there. He was a fireball, and he was intently preaching to people in Arabia. And that's the view of the early church fathers. That's what they said. That's why he went to Arabia. But that seems to be inconsistent with the, with the purpose of Paul going. It seems to be uh, inconsistent even with the preaching opportunities that Paul would have. You see, this was a, a very sparsely populated area, not a place that's really conducive to great evangelistic campaigns. So Paul, if he's looking for people, he doesn't want to go to northern Arabia. So he has to have a different purpose here. And the purpose is that he chose to get away from population centers. He chose to get away from anyone that might influence him. And so he sought seclusion in Arabia to contemplate what had happened to him. You see, here's a man who is very deeply rooted in his Phariseeism. Uh, he, had had, he, he just had a radical change in his life. I mean, it, it, we talked about how radical that change was. Now he has to look at scriptures in an entirely different light. Now he has to see Christ in the Old Testament where he never saw him before. He had to interpret things differently. And so he wanted to get away from anybody that would influence him. And so he went into this, this sparsely populated area in order to receive one-on-one leadership of the Holy Spirit. Here is where Paul got his grounding in the doctrines of the faith. And here was where, is where Paul sought the clarity to find out what God really wanted him to do and what he was called to do. So did Paul go to seminary? Well, in a manner of speaking, he did. He went where there was one instructor and there was one student. And uh, he didn't go to the, to the Sistine Chapel. He didn't have that over him. He didn't go to the hallowed halls of Cambridge to learn there. But instead... He went where the sky was his ceiling, where the rocks were his desk, and his instructor was the Holy Spirit of God. And this is where he learned these deep doctrines of the faith that later are written in the New Testament by his own hand. So this is really just a a remarkable course for him. He never sat under the tutelage of any person in the church. And yet, this man becomes the greatest expounder of church doctrine in the history of Christianity. And he received that by direct revelation from God. So, Arabia then, uh, this trip into Arabia is offered as proof that he couldn't have received this from any man. It had to come directly from God. Now, we look at the end of the 17th verse. 
And here he says that he returned to Damascus. And in the 18th verse, it says that he spent three years in Arabia and Damascus. Now, now we don't know exactly how that time was divided. Uh, we don't know how much time he spent which, which place. But he did go back to Damascus. And, and that's another thing you've got to think about, too. Because now he's, he was down south in Arabia. Damascus is up north of Jerusalem. And so it seems like here would be the perfect time. Bypass, go through Jerusalem, and there see the apostles on your way back to Damascus. But Paul didn't do that. He bypassed Jerusalem altogether and went straight to Damascus. Now, another interesting thing I think about this uh, is that in the, in the book of Acts, which is the history of the church, we don't have any record of this. Luke, who wrote the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, does not record that Paul went into Arabia. And if he hadn't told us here in the book of Galatians, we never would have known anything about this. Uh, so Paul saw fit to reveal this to us. And the reason that he does, it's evidence for the alibi. I mean, he can't be in Jerusalem because he was in Arabia. So they can't say that he got this doctrine from the other apostles. Now, in reading the book of Acts, it's not Luke's purpose to give us a complete biography of Paul. And it's not Paul's purpose to give us an autobiography of everything that he ever did. He just gives us the information that we need to know. Now, Luke does record what happened when he returned to Damascus. He did return there with this flaming zeal. You see, now having the instruction of the Holy Spirit and now having this truth under his belt, he wants to do the only thing that a man who, who's been called to do this can do, and that is to preach. And so he was just like Jeremiah. He had this burning in his bones that he had to get out. And so he goes back to Damascus and he begins to preach the gospel of Christ to the people in Damascus. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9 and we'll take a look at this for just a moment. And what we'll note here uh, first is we won't see anything about the Arabian trip. That's excluded. But we do see what happened when Paul returned there. This is in Acts chapter 9 beginning at verse number 22. It says, But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that, many days were fulfilled. Now, notice we don't have any mention of Arabia here, but I want you to notice very carefully verse number 23. After that, many days were fulfilled. Now, that's a Jewish way of saying it's a long period of time. After a long period of time. And there is where you find Paul in Arabia, actually. That's the three-year period that's going on in Galatians 1.18. So he says, and after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel. This is Luke recording. The Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. So Paul returns to Damascus. Here is a man who is now strong in the faith, taught by the Holy Spirit. He has all these doctrines inside of him. And now with, the, with a double-edged sword of Scripture that divides the joints and the marrow, Paul began to uh, argue with the Jews that were there and showing them that, that Christ is the Savior of the world. And so with cutting precision, he began to destroy all the Jewish arguments against the Christ. Well, they don't have any way to defend themselves. Paul has Scripture. He has the right interpretation of Scripture, and the Jews can't do anything with him. So what did they decide to do? 
They plotted to kill him. And Paul became aware of that plot. And there was no way that he could avoid this unless he can get out of the city. And he can't go through the front gate or the other gates of the city because that's where they're going to be waiting to catch him just as soon as he tries to escape. And so when he learned of the plot, the disciples helped him by putting him over the wall of Damascus and letting him down from the wall in a basket. And you see, God was miraculously preserving Paul, preserving his life. So then, after three years, after, after, three years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem. But it wasn't to seek the apostles' approval. Now, let's look next at the sight of the apostle. Verse number 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. So he didn't go to Jerusalem to get his apostolic degree. He didn't go there to get approval of the apostles. But we do see that he had an introduction to Peter. And, and I, I suppose that's in order. Uh, Peter was preaching the gospel. Paul was preaching the gospel. And so if you're going to go to Jerusalem, then you'd want to meet up with the apostles that are there. The word see, uh, in verse number 18, if you look at that, the word see, that's actually the same word that means sightseeing, but it also is a word that means to make someone's acquaintance. And so here's the purpose for Paul going to Jerusalem, not to get approval, but to acquaint himself with the apostles that were there. Now, we notice also that the trip only took 15 days. Now, that's not enough time for instruction if Paul needed to know the deep things of God. I mean, how many of you hear that 15 days after you got saved or 15 days of instruction was enough to indoctrinate you in all you need to know about the Bible? I mean, how long have we been sitting here going through book after book and verse after verse and all the chapters that we've been through and we keep learning and learning and learning and we, we haven't even touched the surface of where the Apostle Paul was in his learning. Fifteen days is no way possible for him to learn these doctrines that he taught the church. And so uh, Paul's using that. I mean, and, and anyway, he's already preached the gospel with great effect in Damascus. So he goes to see Peter. Actually, he went to see all the apostles, but... He only saw Peter, and as we see here, he mentions James. So what was it they talked about? Why, why did he go talk to Peter? What's, the, what's this about? And, and, and I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall to hear the conversation. And probably Peter started out this way. Oh, Paul, I'm happy to see you, finally to meet you. I hear you've been preaching. But before we can ever get into any kind of conversations, what needs to happen is you, you need to come over here and bow and kiss my ring. I mean, after all, I'm the Pope, you know. Well, that, we know that can't be the truth. We'll find out just a little bit later that Peter was not infallible. We find that in chapter 2. So, what did they talk about? Well, Peter may have related to him what happened during the three years of Jesus' ministry as the uh, disciples walked with Jesus and learned from him. There could have been a lot of stories that he told about uh, the crowds that Jesus drew as he preached and the miracles that he performed. And goodness knows there was a lot of stuff to choose from. John said Jesus did so many things that the world couldn't contain the books that could be written for the things that he did. So Peter had a lot to talk about, a lot that he could, he could tell uh, Paul about. And then what did Paul say to Peter? Well, maybe he told him about this hair-raising experience that he had just been let down over the wall at Damascus. 
Or maybe he talked to him about what went on in those years that he was in Arabia and how that the Holy Spirit had spoken to him and how he learned these doctrines of the Word of God. We don't really know what they talked about, but they did have this meeting. Now, there, there are three interesting points, really, that I will look at here concerning this. And the first one is that he says he saw none but Peter. He mentions James, I said, but he says, let's, let's talk about Peter. I, I saw none of the apostles but Peter, and, and he saw James. Well, the question is, where are the other apostles? I mean, if you're going to Jerusalem, and you made this trip, and you're going to be there two weeks, where are the rest of the apostles? Well, it may have been that they had left Jerusalem. There was a lot of persecution, remember, and people had spread out from Jerusalem because of that persecution. And perhaps the apostles uh, later went out and followed them out to minister to them and to preach them. Now, we do learn this in Acts chapter 8, verse number 1, that at first the apostles didn't go. The, the persecution came, and everybody spread out and went to other areas, but the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And the great irony of that is the one who drove everybody out was who? It was Paul. He was the one that caused everybody to leave. He was the one that was wreaking havoc uh, all through the land and, and taking people and putting them into jail and killing people for the gospel. So he's the one that drove them out. But now, three years have elapsed. And so it could very well be that the apostles had traveled out from Jerusalem and they were preaching in other places. Now, the second point that I want to make here is that there isn't any special emphasis on seeing Peter. I mean, this is just sort of a blunt statement that he makes. He didn't see the other apostles, but he did see Peter. And, and he states that like Peter is just one of the group. I mean, nothing special, just Peter happened to be the one that he was there and that he met. And the third interesting point, I think, about this is what he says about James. He says, But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Who? Who's James? Well, he's not talking about the James that was originally chosen as an apostle. You know who that is. That's James, who is the brother of John. And uh, he had already died. I mean, he had been beheaded by Herod very early after, uh, after the apostles began their ministry in Jerusalem. So that James is dead. This is not the other James, the James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also an apostle. He's not talking about him. So he describes him as the Lord's brother. And we see James in other scriptures and where he's called the brother of the Lord, but he's actually the half-brother of Jesus. And this is the one who is the author of the book of James. He is the leader in the Jerusalem church. Not Peter. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And Acts 15 shows us that. And we're going to be looking at Acts 15 a little bit later on as we study chapter 2. But here, uh, James was the chief spokesman of the church in Jerusalem. And as you read chapter 15, you'll find that James is the one who hands down the decision, the final word that says Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. But the real point that I want to make about this is that James was not one of the apostles. And yet it appears that Paul refers to him as an apostle. So was James an apostle? You know, James never says that anywhere in his, in what, in, in his book. He doesn't call himself an apostle. But we can't really use that because John never called himself an apostle either. I mean, in all his writings, he never said he was an apostle. He calls himself an elder and, and such things as that. But he never says, I'm John the apostle. 
So uh, you can't use that as proof. So it could be that what happened here is that James may have been selected as an apostle, as Matthias was, uh, maybe by a vote of the other apostles. Maybe he was called by, by God specially to be an apostle. And nobody really knows the answer to that question. Uh, it does appear by looking at scriptures that there were other apostles. And uh, Tabor and I had a discussion about that not long ago, about how that's possible and how we could prove it and such things as that. There's really no way to prove this, but it appears that the Apostle Paul is referring to him as an apostle uh, also. Now, so it's neither the apostles that, that, that taught Paul. He says, flesh and blood didn't teach me anything, so he did not receive the doctrines of, of the faith and receive the call of, calling of the gospel except by divine revelation. Now then he has one more step, one more step in his proof. And this is what I want to call the sojourn of absence. And this is in verse number 20, starting there. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face under the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in time past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. So what did Paul do next? Well, he goes far out into Syria and Cilicia. He couldn't have been in contact with the other apostles. Now, he, he, he's making the point here all over and over, and over again that in all these activities, he proves that there was not sufficient contact with the apostles to have received instruction from them. In verse 22, he says, I didn't spend any time in the churches of Judea. And that's where most of the concentration of churches were. None of them, he says, would know me if they saw me. They wouldn't know me by face. The only way they knew the apostle Paul was by reputation. And oh, how that reputation changed, didn't it? First, he's this frightening persecutor that drove these people out of their homes and, and they feared him. And now he's been changed from the persecutor into the preacher and he's preaching the faith that he once destroyed. And this is not a subtle remark that he makes here because he's, he's letting us know that he was actually preaching the right gospel because all of these people in the Judean churches they believed the very same things that he did. And all of those people were saved by the gospel of Christ, the very same thing that he preached. And so what does he say the churches did in Judea? He says, and they glorified God in me. All these statements are put here to put down the Judaizers' assertions that he can't be an apostle of Christ. Now, why did they glorify God? Well, some of the reasons are apparent to us. God had saved this horrible person and made him a preacher of the gospel. And so they glorified in God's sovereign pleasure because what God had done was to relieve them of their worst enemy. And God could have done that in, in different ways. He could have just zapped Paul with a lightning bolt on the way to Damascus and left a pair of smoldering shoes in the middle of the highway. Could have got rid of Paul that way if he wanted to. But instead what God did was to show this outstanding example of his mercy and grace. Because he took this man, Saul, who was a persecutor of Christians, and he made him a preacher of the gospel. He made him an apostle 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, preaching and having that office, that's the highest calling that a man could ever have. You know, I thought about this too when looking at the Apostle Paul. What is it that makes a good preacher? Look at Paul. What makes a good preacher? Well, several answers we could probably give to that question. But I want to tell you some things that were not a part of Paul's preaching. You know, what we really like is we like somebody with the silver tongue. And we like somebody who can tell very interesting stories. Paul was not a great orator. In fact, that's one of the great things that, that the Greeks remarked about him. They were masters of oratory. And they said, Paul, he can't speak. You know, he, he doesn't even know how to talk. I mean, he, he's, he's not a great orator. So Paul couldn't rely on that to make him a great preacher. And then we search the scriptures, and we don't find any examples of Paul's comedic talents. I haven't found any jokes that he told in scripture and the sermons that he preached. I haven't found any long, tear-jerking stories, or any other stories for that matter, except stories about his conversion. And uh, so I just don't see Paul, you know, telling all these things that preachers talk about instead of preaching the gospel of Christ. And then we look at what he did talk about. He's always making these logical arguments. He's always got these strong doctrinal positions. He's always doing straightforward exposition of Old Testament text. So I came to a conclusion by looking at Paul as the preacher. And I came to the conclusion, there's no way that guy's going to get hired 95% of churches today. Paul showed up today in churches, he'd still be unknown by face to most of the churches because they'd never listen to him. They'd never let him in. I mean, here's a fellow that had this no-compromise style. Nobody wants that in a church today. I mean, there's no black gray areas with this guy. He's black and white all the way. Either you're in or you're out. That's what Paul says. Either you believe this or you don't, and shame on you if you don't. So this no-compromise style. He's heavy on doctrinal preaching. And where do you find that? Who's, who's preaching doctrine today? Where do you find that? Nobody's doing that. And then what about this eye-opener? You read what the Apostle Paul said. Do you think that he'd be welcome in Sonoma County? Look at what he had to say about homosexuals, about gays. And what's his opinion of women preachers? Well, he wouldn't be welcome here. And then Paul would have the same problem today that he had 2,000 years ago if he tried to preach here because you come to churches today with a justification by faith alone gospel, that's going to shut doors in your face. And not to mention just what he taught about the doctrines of grace. That's enough to shut a few more doors, isn't it? So where are we now in this whole picture? What, what kind of conclusion do we draw from all of Paul's arguments? Is he actually telling us the truth? Verse 20, he says, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. So is he lying? Or do we go back to that first message that I preached on this particular series, on God's gospel? And do we, do we take the word of Thomas Jefferson? Was he telling the truth about it? Thomas Jefferson said that we are justified by works. And he claimed that much of what Jesus said was ignorant, absurd, untrue, and contradictory. He said the apostles were stupid rogues. And he said that Paul was the leader of the dupes and the imposters, and he was the one who first corrupted the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Well, would to God that we had more theological giants for president like Thomas Jefferson was. So what do we do? Do we take Thomas Jefferson's word? 
Well, I'll tell you this much. When it comes to Christianity, the American government, don't put your faith in it. The American government is not the champion of Christianity. So don't put your faith in them. We put our faith in the Lord of the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to stick with Paul, and we'll stay away from the rituals and all the good works that people think make them right with God. We'll stay away from all of that, because Paul's gospel is God's gospel. And he received that by divine revelation. And what Paul said is that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone and the work that he did on Calvary said, you will be saved if you believe that. So this is not Paul's invention. His, his life before his conversion proved it. Nobody could have changed this man. Nothing but the grace of God could have done that. His conversion itself proved it. There was God's irresistible plan for his conversion before he was born, for his apostleship, for the calling. Nobody but God could make him a preacher of the gospel. And then his activities after his conversion proved it. He never sought the counsel of men, but what he drew on was this personal encounter, first that he had with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then secondly, with the teachings that he received in that one-on-one seminary with the Holy Spirit as his teacher. So, folks, we can believe Paul. The, the gospel that he preached is God's gospel. And here is the truth of it all. It's the only gospel by which we can be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the time we spent together tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for what we've learned here. And as we look into Paul's life and the proof of his apostleship and the gospel that he preached... And we're thankful, Lord, that he was preaching the truth and we can read the words that he said and know that these are words that came directly from you. So, Lord, we ask you that you would help us to believe your word, practice your word, and most of all, that we would be witnesses as the Apostle Paul was. May your word be in us a burning fire as it was in him and as in the prophet Jeremiah. Bless us, Lord, and help us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.